to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. Okay. And uh, we're in this series called We the Church. And I'm very excited about this. And, you know, you think about We the Church. Man, isn't that awesome? Uh, think about what that involves, what that entails, and just, you know, how the Lord has worked in all of us to bring us into His body, the church. And if you look around this morning, you know, you think about it, you know, all of us are bound together here this morning in unity, in one community, one common reality. And that common reality is this, that none of us here could afford a lake cabin or a cabin in the woods. And so we are stuck here in Borger, Texas this morning. All right. That's why we're here today. Now, actually, I know I know better than that. I know a lot of you could have gone a lot of places and you chose to be here. So thank you so much. But here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul uh, gets really personal and practical at the very end of this very long letter. Uh, and it gives us an insight as to how the church ought to function if the apostles are in charge. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 16, look with me at verse 1. Here we go. He says, he's been talking about eternal life, he's been talking about paradise, the eternal body, and heaven. And then he switches gears right away, and he starts talking about money. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. All right? Right out of the gate. Practical church, pure church. Paul addresses this topic. And we really shouldn't be surprised at all to see this because, believe it or not, money and possessions is the most talked about topic anywhere in your Bible. Money is talked about in your Bible more than prayer, more than faith, more than heaven, hell, even salvation. There are over 2,300 references to money and possessions in the Bible. Major themes in 2 Corinthians, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, even Genesis and Job. <coughs> and there, you know, there, think about this, there are 500 references to prayer in the Bible, over 2,000 to money. Jesus spent more time talking about money than any other topic, including heaven, salvation, freedom, all those kinds of things. Of the 37 parables of Jesus that we have recorded in our scriptures, 17 of them have to do with money and property and how to be good stewards of it. Now, this is not a really easy topic to talk about, okay? There are a lot of crooked preachers out there these days. You know, there are a lot of churches trying to shake down the sheep, you know, so pastors can have, you know, big offices, nice clothes, and these kind of things, all right? And there's some suspicion out there that's kind of justified, and a lot of people don't think that this topic should come up at all in church, and there are people out there, it might be your first Sunday here, it's like, man, is all they talk about is money. No, once a year we talk about this issue, but it comes up right here. We've been going through 1 Corinthians for a long time, and here we are, and we're being faithful to the Word of God. But when you bring it up, people get tense, right? There's a pastor in a small town out in West Texas, and uh, he was still new, and he just finished up his first message on giving. And a little boy, probably about Clayton's age, came up to him after the service, and he said, he said, uh, he started digging his pockets, and he, he had a handful of pennies and quarters, 
And he says, here, preacher, I want you to have this. And the pastor said, well, son, I'm really touched, but what would make you think that I would need your hard-earned money? He said, oh, my daddy back there, he just said, you're the poorest preacher we've ever had. I think you need this more than I do, all right? And so Paul, is what is he doing here? He's gathering money from all the churches that he's planted all over the Roman world, and he's going to give it to the Christians in Jerusalem because they were being heavily persecuted there in Jerusalem. And on top of that, there was a great famine going on. And I really love this. This is an old version of the Bible. It's very literal. And a great verse in this passage. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 3, When I shall be with you, whomsoever you shall approve by letters, I will send them to carry your grace to Jerusalem. Do you see what Paul kind of alluding to there? Like, this is a gift, but it's also a grace. In other words, you wouldn't be able to send this gift if it hadn't been for God's grace that made it possible for you to do this. And this is what's on my heart today, for you and I to have a whole new vision for life, a way of handling money and possessions that is guided by and guarded by the grace of God. You know, I think I've, I've talked about these kinds of topics many, many times over the years. I have to say that this is really new for me, just the way we're going to talk about this today. And, you know, I know you might have heard me talk about these things before, and I, we lay out all kinds of principles. We've talked about, you know, all kinds of precepts. But today we're going to really talk about, you know, why is this such a struggle for us? We read 1 Corinthians 16, 3, and Paul says, you know, save up money. Like, I can't save money, you know. Give some money every week. How can I do that if I can't save any? You know, how does this happen? How can this work in our lives? What we need is we need God's grace on the one hand and our money on the other. And we need those two things to collide together and mesh together so that we can have a new and better relationship with money. In 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter said, The God of all grace, who imparts his blessing and favor, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, he will complete you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you, making you what you ought to be. That is the great, great vision of our lives. This is the goal of life. This is success to be what we ought to be, allowing God to make us into that. And so the title today is Money by Grace. Money by Grace. Look at verse 1. Now about the collection for God's people, he's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to do what I've already told the Galatians to do. He wants them to be givers. He's done this. He's mentioned, by the way, that the Galatian churches need to be giving and the Corinthian churches, he talks about their giving. He's also talked in 2 Corinthians about the Macedonian churches giving. In other words, everywhere that Paul went, he was exhorting people and teaching people to be givers. And their economic situation really wasn't the issue. This was a universal expectation for the disciples of Jesus. You see, Corinth was an extremely wealthy port city, something to like New York or, or Los Angeles or Houston, very wealthy. In fact, archaeologists tell us that they've discovered that some of the wealthy and prominent citizens of Corinth were actually disciples of Jesus. They were reading this letter they received from Paul. But it's no surprise that, you know, Paul would be exhorting these wealthy people to give because they can give and it won't really change their lifestyle at all. What's surprising, however, is that when you read his other letters, 
and he's exhorting the Galatians and the Macedonians to give to someone else. These two regions of the world, and this is still true today, were very rural, very pastoral. They had an agricultural economy. Most people there were very poor, just kind of surviving day to day. And you ask yourself, how could Paul exhort these people who are basically have a sustenance lifestyle to give to someone else? They barely have enough for themselves. Look at this scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, brothers and sisters, we want to tell you what God's grace has done in the churches in Macedonia. They've been tested by great troubles. They were very poor, but their great joy caused them to be very generous in their giving. I can tell they, they have give, given as much as they were able and even more than they could afford. No one told them to do this. It was their idea. They asked us again and again, and they begged us to have this opportunity to share in the service to God's people. And why did the Macedonians give when they had so little for themselves? Paul says this, the grace of God did it. Well, what does he mean by that? We talk about this a lot in church life. You know, hey, I need God's grace. I need grace. What does that mean? Here's a great definition for grace. God's grace is the freely given favor bestowed unconditionally on those who do not deserve it. In His grace, God gives some people first salvation, but then He offers them His wisdom, His strength, His love, His faith, His patience, and every other spiritual resource necessary to do what? To be everything that God wants them to be what they ought to be, as Peter says. All right? That's what grace is. And see how we talk about salvation by grace, we must also talk about our sanctification or our our separateness, our differentness by grace. And what does it look like when we do money by grace? It's more than turning over a new leaf. It's a new way of life. It's a different way of seeing the world. See, there are three principles that I think are really key to money by grace. Three attitudes. Number one, it's all God's. It's all God's. Our money problems begin when we have a sense of ownership over the things that we have. And ownership is really never true of a creature who is a worshiper of a creator. All right? We are trustees. We are stewards. But we are not owners. When King David was getting ready to build a massive temple for the Lord, he asked all the people to give. And all the people of Israel came together. They gave so generously. And David was so overwhelmed with how much they gave that he prayed out loud in front of the people. And he said this, O Lord, everything in the heavens and earth is yours. I'm sorry, Solomon said this. Everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord. This is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Life is not about my wants, my desires, my dreams, my plans, my purposes. My life is about God's glory, God's will, God's purpose, God's pleasure. This is what life is really all about. Number two, the attitude is this, that money is stronger than me. You know, think about this. I don't know if you've ever really wondered 
about the strength that money has. You know, growing up, I have to be honest with you, I really never thought about money very much at all. I grew up kind of out of town, out in the country, and I was perfectly content most of the time. And then as a teenager, I moved to this coal mining town, uh, you know, really good, down-to-earth folks. Everybody's kind of drove pickups and wore blue jeans. And, you know, I just never really thought anything about money, and it wasn't really a concern of mine. But then I went off to college in Lubbock, Texas, and I had no money in my pockets. And I had a 1980 Honda Accord. Okay, I got a picture for you. Yeah, it looked just like that, all right? And it had hail damage, all right? And the front end was out of line. It was a really tiny little car, and I had to, like, squeeze myself into that thing. And when I went to Texas Tech, the popular car on campus, because so many kids would drive down Interstate 20, go to Lubbock to go to school, the suburbs of Dallas, those kids were driving BMW convertibles. That was really popular, you know, 85, 86, and 87. And it seemed like they were everywhere. And I can remember for the very first time in my life, my thoughts began to be dominated by money. How can I make more money? How can I make a really good living? How can I buy one of those someday? You know, that kind of thing. And I, for the first time in my life, I began to wonder what other people were thinking about my economic status. You know? Like I mentioned a moment ago, this little Honda, I said it hail damage and other things like that. And the front end was kind of, it was really bad out of line. I spent a lot of money trying to get it fixed. I could never get it fixed. And so it was always shaking. So you can imagine me, you know, in there, you know, I'm driving this little car, you know, the front end or something like that. <laughs> All right. And I remember going down Interstate 20 and like these caravans of BMWs be passing me by and watching them going by, you know. And I just remember thinking, man, I just, I'm so miserable. I'm so miserable, you know, driving a little car. And so here what, here's what happened. My discontentment took root and it became resentment. Why don't I have the same things that everyone else does? Now think about the insanity of that. I'm at a Division I university. I'm getting an education and I'm ungrateful. That's so insane. It really is. How many people in the world would have cut off a hand you know, to have an opportunity like that. And I wish I could tell you that one day I just had this incredible breakthrough, and then all of a sudden, all that discontentment and resentment, it just kind of just melted away. I have to be honest with you, though, that that fear of being looked down upon because of my economic status, it just haunted me ever since. And discontentment, it's a massive daily battle for me still. And you want, I want to think, I want you to think about this. Why all of a sudden the change? I was perfectly content for like the first 18, 19 years of my life. Then all of a sudden it all flipped on me. Look at Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, those without faith. Can you remember when money began dominating your thoughts? For me, it was college. I had to think about this. You know, what happened? I was wounded. I was hurt. You know, I was embarrassed. I grew into insecurity and resentment, things like that. You know, your parents, they might have had an intense focus on money, and that was passed on to you. Perhaps a certain event triggered it, but it's true for all of us. That money begins to dominate our thoughts. Perhaps something happened when you were younger and you were wounded or you were hurt because of something having to do with a lack of money. 
And now the way you handle money is guided more by the pain of your past than it is by the principles and the precepts of God's word. However it began, that's not really so much the issue, is that we understand money can become uh, something that dominates our thoughts. And Jesus warned us against this. And here's the thing I want you to see today, that in your own strength, you do not have the power to master money, to make it your servant. It's too strong. It has too much influence. In my own strength, I am not capable of mastering money. However, money has the strength to master me if I don't have God's grace at work in my life. You see, our society constantly bombards us with these messages called advertisements that basically are saying, you know, your life is really messed up and wrecked because you don't have everything yet that everybody else has. And so the way to get success and peace and comfort, contentment, fulfillment, and happiness is just more stuff. And it never works for anybody. And if you don't have these things at the income level that you're at now, the world says, well, you just need a little bit more. You know, if you could just get a little bit farther ahead, then you would be happy. Then you would be fulfilled. Then you'll feel successful. You may, not want, you may not have what you want now, but if you had just a little bit more money, then you would. The wealthiest man in all of history, King Solomon, he gave us a somber warning. He said, the one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. Have you ever noticed that many people with more money, they have the same problems everybody else does? It's just that the numbers get bigger, you know? They have the same arguments, but just the numbers are bigger. The same stress, the same anxiety, the same worry, the same fear, the same insecurity. All those things that plague the poor plague the wealthy. Do you know that the number one cause for divorce in this country is arguing over finances. And at the University of Virginia, some research was done, and I share this with all married new couples that I do premarital counseling with. The size of a couple's income has no bearing on the level of conflict over finances. Couples with high incomes, you know, there are the dinks. When Melly and I first got married, we were dinks. Uh, double income, no kids. Then when we started having kids, we became silks. Single income, lots of kids. <laughs> all right? You know, so and we went from dink to silk. All right? But couples with high incomes, the dinks, they divorce just as frequently as couples with very modest incomes. In other words, making more money does not lessen the conflict over it. It's just that the numbers get bigger and the bills get bigger. All right? So, in Jesus' teaching, there's no other thing that he speaks about that has quite as much power as money. It has the power, Jesus said, to master you and me. Luke 16, 13, Jesus said, no one can serve two, what? Masters. Think about that for a moment. If we just stopped right there, that is a remarkable statement. Because what Jesus is attributing to money is the power to actually master you or me. See, the world is so broken by sin 
that it does not function the way God originally intended. Money does not present itself to us as a servant. It poses as a savior. It seduces our sin-crippled hearts to trust it for things that it was never intended to provide. It seduces us as an idol to put our faith in more than we put our faith in our Creator who is forever praised. And if we put our, our hope, our trust, and our faith in our wealth, we give it power. And when you give anything in your life that kind of power, you put faith in it, it becomes an idol, and it can then master you. And if money becomes your master, you are giving it the power to shape your destiny. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul said this, those who long to get rich, all right, be very clear. The Bible tells, never tells you or me it's wrong to, to be rich. Uh, Job was very wealthy. Abraham, very wealthy. Solomon, David, I can go on and on. Some of God's greatest servants, very, very wealthy. Daniel probably lived, lived with a lot of wealth, okay? So there's nothing wrong with being rich. It's a longing to be rich. Like, I must have that to be okay, all right? But those who long for it fall in temptation and trap foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and misery. The love of money is the root of all evil, and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Where we go astray is when money masters us because we, we hope in it, we trust in it, we put our faith in it, and it begins to shape our destiny. So number three, real quickly, is this. The only way you and I can manage our money is by grace. That's the only thing that is going to help us do this. Most of us think, you know, if I could just make just a little bit more money, then I wouldn't have any more problems, <laughs> you know. Just this last April, there's an institution called the Lending Club. They did a survey of 4,000 United States consumers. This is while inflation was still rising. You know, that transitory inflation was still going up, okay? Six out of ten American consumers are living paycheck to paycheck as inflationary pressure continues to rise. And three out of five U.S. consumers spend all of their earnings with little or nothing left over at the end of the month. And that was a 10% increase from the previous year. So that was a big, big jump. But what was surprising to them when they did this survey was that this was true of people in all income brackets living paycheck to paycheck. Those who made more than $100,000 annually were just as likely to be living paycheck to paycheck as those who made far less. And one out of every three consumers, listen to this now, who were earning $250,000 or more annually are currently living paycheck to paycheck. Wow. Wow. That's not even bringing in the professional athletes, right? <laughs> okay? So we make a grave mistake sometimes. We think about our, our, our wealth in terms of addition and subtraction. Like as long as I'm adding you know, an, uh, more than I'm subtracting, I'm going to be okay. But everything belongs to God. Remember that. Okay, that's number one. Okay. And God has built a variable into the system. 
And so it's not really addition and subtraction. It's more like algebra or calculus, all right? And that variable is a little g. It's called grace, all right? Proverbs eleven twenty four. One person is generous and grows more wealthy. In other words, they're giving their money away, yet they have even more. Why? Because of that little variable in the calculus called grace. Another withholds more than he should. I need to save more money. I need to hang on to my money so I have plenty of wealth. And yet, Solomon says, he comes to poverty. Why? Because in the calculus that God has built into the system, they're ignoring the little g, grace. It's the prosperity paradox. And that is that generosity determines your prosperity. The one who holds wealth and, and clings to his wealth will actually diminish it, the Bible says. You know, there's a church in Philippi. They're in Macedonia, right? They gave a generous gift to Paul for his ministry. And he didn't ask for it. It was unexpected. It was just a purely an act of grace on their part. And he wrote them a letter, and he said this in Philippians 4. He said, now that Epaphroditus has brought me your gifts, you have filled my needs. Your gifts are a soothing aroma, a sacrifice that God accepts with which he is pleased. All right, do you see that? They're getting that little G, the little variable at work there. God is pleased with what you have done. And may my God will, I hope, he says, my God will richly fill your every need in a glorious way through Christ Jesus. What is happening here? Paul is confidently, expectantly, you know, waiting for God to do something really incredible for these Philippians who have graced him with money. And God is going to fill their every need. In other words, you're going to receive from God in response to your giving. Because grace is one of God's defining attributes. It's in God's very nature to extravagantly give. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, You are recognizing more strongly and clearly the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in that though he was so very rich, yet for your sakes he became so very poor in order that by his poverty, you might become rich. That you might be abundantly supplied, as he told the Philippians. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a powerful word picture of prosperity. God wants to grace you and me with everything that we need for prosperity. Now, when we think about prosperity, we all reflexively think about our monetary needs. But prosperity is so much more than that. The biblical imagery of prosperity includes so much more than just the monetary. It also includes the, the spiritual, the emotional, the relational, the mental, so many things. For instance, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, Paul said to the Corinthians, just as you are abounding, you're overflowing in everything. You have faith, you have speech, you have knowledge, you have earnestness or passion. And in the love from us in you, you know, I urge you also be abounding or overflowing in this grace. What grace is that? Giving. Because of the grace of God, Paul says, you have, you have faith, you have passion for life. There's great teaching in your church. Man, there's knowledge. People in your church know things. It's, it's incredible how much they know. And there's this passion for life in your church. It's a beautiful thing. But most importantly, most life-changing is that you now have this agape, 
That's the word for love he uses there, that, that supernatural love in your life. This is prosperity, ladies and gentlemen. When you have these spiritual riches, these emotional riches, these relational riches, that is prosperity. But Paul urges them, all these things are intimately bound together with your giving. So you cannot prosper. You cannot prosper in a very real and true way if you're using the same strategies the rest of the world uses. What are those? There are three of them. Number one is just grit. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to save every penny possible. All right? That's the strategy a lot of people have out there. Number two is just guesswork. You know, you're reading the stock market, trying to decide where to invest. You're online. You're e-trading, day trading, all those kinds of things. You know, it's just guesswork. It really is. And the other one, the third one is a little bit like it. It's gambling, right? You know, just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to play the stock market day to day, those kinds of things, risky business ventures, get-rich-quick schemes. This is what empowered Bernie Madoff was this, this gambling mentality. I can get the one big payday. And obviously lottery tickets fall into that. You know, you had the person in Borger who won a million dollars, you know. Everybody's like, yeah, I hope they go to my church. You know, <laughs> What if they're not a giver? <laughs> you know, it doesn't you know. We don't need lottery winners for God to supply what we need. Can I get an amen to that? Grace, though, grace offers us the only hope of real prosperity when it comes to our finances. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul said this, God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that all things at all times, having all that you need, you will overflow in every good work. You think, yeah, that's true in church. That's also true in our homes. That's true in our businesses. That's true in the community where you abound. You, you overflow in every good work. And he who provides seed to the sower, bread for food, will provide and multiply your seed for sowing. You will increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, you will be what you ought to be. That's what it means to harvest righteousness. You'll be the kind of person that people look at and say, that's a man, that's a woman of character and integrity. It's, they live a supernatural life. I can't understand how they're doing it. It's all intimately, intimately connected with our generosity. He said, you'll be made rich in every way. Every way. In your home, in your business, in your community dealings, in your church, in your one-on-one -on -one relationships. You'll be made rich in every way so that you may be generous in every way. You think about generosity, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just, you know, hey, can I borrow five bucks? Sure, here's five bucks. No, it's like, man, my marriage is falling apart. Can I talk to you? Sure. And you have some things to give. You know, hey, you know, generous in every way. It's like, you know, hey, my son my, or my daughter, they're, man, they're really, really struggling, uh, you know, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. Can they talk to you? Sure. And you have some things to give. This is what it means to be generous in every way, you know. So when you give, it's given to you, Jesus says. But except that it's overflowing. There's an abundance that's given back to you. When does God's grace really begin to impact your life and mine? When we admit our weakness. When we admit our weakness, our crippledness, that's when God's grace begins to pour into our lives. And His strength, His wisdom, His patience begins to transform our hearts and our minds. And then we begin to see our lives change into what we ought to be.
This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I begged the Lord three times to take this problem away from me. He called it his thorn in the flesh. Something that was causing him a great deal of pain. But the Lord said, my grace is all you need. And only when you are weak can everything be done completely by my strength. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to think about this as we leave today. We need grace. We need grace to lay aside the emotional baggage that surrounds our money and walk in freedom. All right? So that money is no longer our master. We need grace in our weakness so that money does not master us with things like insecurity and worry and fear. We need grace to be healed from the wounds of our past that affect our stewardship today. We need grace to trust God's provision more than our own grit, our own guesswork, our own intelligence as our greatest chance for prosperity. And we need grace to have a righteous relationship with money. And we need grace to be worthy stewards of God's gifts. Grace. Money by grace. Let's just bow our heads this morning as we close. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to say again, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for letting me share my heart with you. I just feel so honored when you do so. And I uh, want you to know it means so much for you to be here today. And I want to ask all of us here today, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, our hearts quiet before the Lord, that we can just go before the Lord and just say, Lord, if there's any place in my heart where money has mastered me, Lord, I need your grace. I want to be healed from the wounds of my past. I want to be healed from the insecurity. And, Father, to be healed of the fear, the worry, so, Lord, I just ask for your grace. And, Lord, where I am weak, I ask for your grace to make me strong. Because, Lord, your, your power is perfected in weakness. And so I admit my weakness. So, yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is where we need grace, is in this area of our lives. And so I'll be quiet for a moment. I just want to ask you to go before the Lord in just a very sincere, quiet way. And just ask the Lord for his grace in your heart that if there's any place where your stewardship of what God has trusted you with needs to change, needs to grow, that God's grace would change you, grow you. So let's be quiet for a moment. Let's take this before the Lord. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for the freedom that you have given us. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for the freedom that you have paid for and bought, that we might have your freedom in this key area of our lives. And so, Father, I just ask that for all of us here today, Lord, if there are some wounds in our past that have created insecurity, worry, and fear, Lord, I pray that you would just bring your healing. And Father, to the degree that our love of money is shaping our destiny, Lord, I just pray that you would just set us free from the longing for money. That our hearts would long for you as in a dry and weary land. I just pray, Father, that you would give us your grace today.
to walk as worthy stewards of all you've trusted us with today. And so, Lord, we admit our weakness today and our great need for you in this area of our lives. And we just thank you, Father. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. And, Lord, if there might be anyone here today who, in pride, believes that they have this all figured out, that they're walking in strength today, Lord, I pray that you would just impress upon all of our hearts, Father, our weakness and our great need for you in this area of our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. For your glory, Father. Amen.